Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, Obamacare is seeing a surge in Texas and across the nation. Why is the Affordable Care Act succeeding despite claims from the right? And Mexican food is now American food. How tacos conquered the United States. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. The number of people signing up for health insurance through healthcare.gov skyrocketed across the country and in Texas, according to new data released by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So far, over 20 million Americans, including 3.3 million Texans, have signed up for health plans for 2024 through the Affordable Care Act, also called Obamacare. Those enrollment numbers reflect an increase of 24% nationwide and 36.5% increase in Texas since the last enrollment period. The number of Texans enrolled in plans through healthcare.gov has nearly tripled over the last three years. Yet, trying to tear down the Affordable Care Act remains a goal for many, including presidential candidate Donald Trump, to explain why the ACA continues to provide low-cost health insurance solutions to a growing number of Texans. I'm joined by Carla Martinez, Senior Policy Analyst at Every Texan. The open enrollment started November 4th, uh, 2023, and we are on track for another year of record-breaking enrollment, which makes it clear that Texans want and value comprehensive health care coverage when a price is affordable. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, released new data this week that shows that the number of people signing up for health insurance through healthcare.gov has skyrocketed across the country and in Texas. Uh, in Texas, we know that at least 3.3 million Texans have signed up for plans already for 2024. And there's still some time to sign up for a plan. So the deadline to sign up for a plan for healthcare.gov is uh, January 16th, so this upcoming Tuesday. Why do you think we're seeing this uh, surge in the number of people enrolling in Obamacare? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different reasons, but we have had a lot of investment to make it more affordable for uh, people to be able to afford a plan through healthcare.gov. So uh, going back since uh, 2021 with the American Rescue Plan Act and then the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, uh, Texans in the marketplace have saved an average of $560 on premiums a year. Um, and so uh, another factor since 2021 is that the federal government has also awarded $13 million in navigator grant funding to community-based organizations across Texas who help people enroll in plans, making it uh, easier for them to actually get on. Uh, and we, uh, the federal government has also invested in a lot of outreach to make sure that people know about healthcare.gov and uh, what their options might be uh, for health coverage. Well, I think there are other factors as well. So nearly 1.7 million Texans have lost their health insurance 
when Texas began peeling people away from Medicaid as part of the post-pandemic unwinding. Texas did it in a way that's been seen as kind of uh, brutal and without a lot of notice. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people lost their coverage with that. And do you think they're moving over to Obamacare? Yeah, so there are a lot of people who have been losing their Medicaid as part of Medicaid unwinding. Um, But most of them, we don't actually know if they're still eligible for Medicaid or if they might be eligible for healthcare.gov. So there are some differences uh, based on people's income on which program they might qualify for. So we know that a lot of people have rolled off Medicaid, but we don't actually know if they're feeding it rolled on healthcare.gov. So we might get a little bit clearer a picture of that um, later this year. But the reality is that most of the people who are on Medicaid in Texas are kids. And um, a, a kids' families' income don't change a whole lot uh, substantially to get them kicked off of Medicaid. Um, so we know that some people might still be without health insurance uh, and we don't we don't won't know the impact of uh, whether people are rolling on to healthcare.gov coverage quite yet. Now the uh, previous presidential administration it did not promote Obamacare matter of fact under the Trump administration they continued to call it a disaster and they actually tried to do away with it and then under President Biden there's been more uh, attention more resources provided to the Affordable Care Act. Yes, that's correct. Uh, the Biden administration has invested a lot of money, time, and resources to make sure that healthcare.gov uh, is affordable and may- remains affordable for people in their pockets. Um, so you know, what four and five consumers in Texas can find a plan that's $10 or less a month. So that definitely helps the affordability factor of that. Um, but the Biden administration has also invested a lot of um, money in navigators, so uh, people who work in community-based organizations to help people enroll in these plans. Uh, they've invested $13 million in Texas um, across the state, so that's definitely making sure that people know about it in their communities. And in addition to that, the Biden administration has invested a lot of money in outreach, so uh, robust media campaigns to make sure that people know about deadlines, that people know about what changed in affordability so that they can go back and see what their options are so that they can enroll in healthcare.gov. Carla Martinez is a senior policy analyst at Every Texan. The controversial border initiative known as Operation Lone Star has wrongfully targeted some U.S. citizens, and there's concern that could happen more often if a new state law takes effect in March. It gives all law enforcement officers the power to arrest anyone that they suspect of crossing the border illegally. KTEP's Angela Kacherga reports an El Paso family targeted by mistake is now seeking accountability. The Ayalas, like many El Paso families, routinely visit relatives just across the border in Mexico. Gerardo Ayala says one evening in October, after they cleared customs and immigration, they made their usual drive back to their house on the Texas side. We were coming home, traveling any normal day, with my family, it was four of us in a, a Chevy Cruze. His wife, their 13-year-old daughter, and her grandmother were in the car with him on a busy, well-lit road. Suddenly, two unmarked trucks seemed to appear out of nowhere and boxed in his family's compact car. All of a sudden, this vehicle rams us from behind, pushes us, 
into the other vehicle. The other vehicle puts his truck in reverse and actually reverses into us. At first, Ayala says he thought it was a chain reaction pileup on this busy roadway near the border. The car was damaged, but running. Already shaken, it only got worse for the family. He says at least four men wearing street clothes and tactical vests quickly surrounded the car. They were pointing semi-automatic rifles at them. Alejandra Lopez is Ayala's wife. When they started coming out with their guns, the first thing I did was look back, you know, to my daughter and my mom. I mean, they were the first things that I thought about. I saw her little face scared. I had never seen her face so scared. The Ayalas are U.S. citizens. They say there was no probable cause to pull them over, and certainly none to ram their car and threaten them with guns. It's not clear how often these improper stops happen. The Texas Department of Public Safety has a complaint process, but does not specifically track those involving Operation Lone Star. Human rights organizations say they will soon begin training Texans about their rights and how to file profiling and other complaints. The Ayala's 13-year-old daughter, Isabella, says the experience has changed her view of law enforcement. It was kind of traumatizing. I don't feel safe anymore because they don't do their job correctly, I'm guessing. The Texas Department of Public Safety, or DPS, has special agents in plain clothes and unmarked vehicles working in the area to break up smuggling rings. Gerardo Ayala says a DPS supervisor that night told him the family car was similar to a vehicle they were tracking. They came in charging. I mean, they look like furious bulls coming at us. As soon as I opened that door and I told them, this is just me and my family, their faces just changed drastically. The family wants an apology. Their car repaired and medical expenses covered that include x-rays at a hospital the night they were hit. Ayala says his 67-year-old mother-in-law has lingering back pain. A Texas DPS spokesperson only said that they're looking into the allegation. A new law is set to take effect in Texas that makes crossing the border illegally a state crime. Now more than 50 immigrant and civil rights organizations are raising concerns. They're worried more U.S. citizens of color living on the border will be profiled and improperly stopped, like the Ayalas. Fernando Garcia directs the Border Network for Human Rights. He says the state crackdown is out of control. They need to launch an investigation on the actual consequences of Operation Star, on migrants dying, of U.S. residents being abused, on waste of money of our taxpayers' dollars. For their part, the Ayalas are considering hiring a lawyer. Gerardo Ayala says he wants those who targeted his family by mistake held accountable. After his experience, he's deeply worried about the new state law. How is this not going to affect us? It's going to affect every single individual here in the borderland. Everyone. Ayala says he needs DPS held responsible for the sake of his family and others in this border city where more U.S. citizens could find themselves mistakenly caught up in a Texas law enforcement crackdown. I'm Angela Cochera in El Paso. Mexican food is virtually everywhere in the United States, especially in Texas. A new analysis by the Pew Research Center published Thursday found that one in 10 restaurants in the United States serves Mexican food. This could be seen as a triumph for the tostada and a hooray for the jalapeno, but this plethora of Mexican plates shows that something fundamentally is changing in America. 
and how so much fear-mongering about the so-called browning of America is misplaced. Mark Hugo Lopez is with Pew Research. We found that Mexican restaurants are uh, in every part of the uh, corner of the nation. So what's striking about this is that about 99% of of the U.S. population lives in a county that has at least one Mexican restaurant. So partly this is about where Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants live, but it also is a reflection of the popularity and the role that Mexican food has played in the American food and restaurant landscape. So one of our big findings here is that many Americans, just about all Americans, in fact, live in a place that has at least one Mexican restaurant. How did you gather this data? So this is data that comes from a database that's uh, developed by, or by, by a company called Safe uh, Graph, which uh, tracks uh, how many restaurants are open and where restaurants are in the United States. Um, this also uh, included an analysis, though, of the Yelp records to look for places identified as Mexican restaurants to be able to get some sense of how expensive they are. Is it a, is it a food truck? Is it a, is it a chain restaurant? And so we wanted to kind of pull both of these together to paint a broad picture of the landscape of not only Mexican restaurants, but Latin American restaurants more broadly. Well, uh, some Mexican restaurants uh, are so uh, small and localized that they may not even have a Yelp presence. So this could be an undercount. It it may be, although the SafeGraph data is meant to be representative of the entire nation. So small restaurants like those that you just described are likely in the SafeGraph uh, uh, database, which is the principal database that we use. However, uh, it's possible that there are also some restaurants that serve Mexican food and another cuisine, like Mexican food and, say, Salvadoran food, and they would be classified under Latin American as opposed to uh, uh, under Mexican alone. So this may be um, at least one estimate of how many places are offering Mexican food, but it may not capture the entire story. Do you, you don't count Taco Bell, do you? Oh, well, it is a chain restaurant, and it does serve Mexican food. In fact, it serves a, a style of Mexican food that comes out of California. And so, yes, it is included in this analysis along with other chains that serve Mexican uh, food. Like when I go to a, basically any small town in Texas, if they have a restaurant, it's going to be a Mexican restaurant. And it's typically mm-hmm. independently owned. Uh, it's by a local family. They are from Mexico, and they are using this as a way to obtain the American dream. Uh, and that's an important point and highlight the why we see this dispersion of Mexican restaurants, not only across the landscape of Texas, as you've noted, but also uh, across the U.S. landscape. So, for example, you will find a Mexican restaurant that is run by a family, a family that, that uh, perhaps are also even recent immigrants, or at least the parents may be immigrants. Um, uh, in places like North Dakota or Montana, in addition to places like Georgia uh, and in places like uh, uh, rural Oregon. Um, but it is a reflection of this dispersion of Mexican restaurants across the country and their availability across the country, not just because of chains like Taco Bell, but also because of the dispersion of the Mexican immigrant population around the U.S. So how would you compare and contrast the availability of Mexican food, Mexican restaurants in the United States to something like uh, Asian food. Yeah, so we did take a look at Asian food, and Asian food is also broadly available across the United States, though not to the same degree as you see Mexican food in Mexican restaurants. So about a le- about 10% of all U.S. restaurants uh, are uh, serve Mexican food. Um, that's um, about where you expect to see the Mexican-American share, by the way, of the U.S. population. is about 37 million 
people in the U.S. who trace their roots to Mexico, for example. Um, but Asian foods are, um, uh, it's a much more diverse landscape. So you see Chinese food and Thai food, and you see Japanese food, Vietnamese. And those food and cuisines are present in many of the nation's largest and most populous cities, of course, for example, and also where there are communities that are tied to the immigrant stories of those groups. Um, nonetheless, uh, Mexican cuisine and Mexican food and more broadly, the Mexican-American population is larger and more dispersed around the country. So you're able to find out that 10 U.S. counties, Mexican restaurants accounted for more than a third of all food establishments in those areas. Of these, eight were in Texas, seven of them were along the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, that seems to make sense, that, that that's where you'd have the highest concentration of Mexican food. Uh, that does make sense, because these are also counties where uh, more than 90% of the population is Mexican-American or Me people who may be immigrants from Mexico. So we're talking about counties like, for example, Hidalgo County or Webb County along the U.S.-Texas-Mexico uh, border. And it's important to keep in mind that that's one of the highest concentrations of Hispanic populations and Mexican populations in the U.S. Um, and there's a long history of communities there um, having a very, very, very strong Mexican presence because... They were, um, as many of those counties and many of those locations were part of Mexico um, before they became part of Texas and they were ultimately part of the U.S. But yes, those are the places where we see the, the greatest share of Mexican restaurants among all restaurants and counties. It's along the U.S.-Mexico border. So can we say at this point that Mexican food is American food? That's a really great point. Uh, Mexican food is part of the U.S. food landscape, and in many ways Mexican food is American food. Um, but it's also important to note that Mexican food is diverse, that it has many, many different um, types of Mexican food. So there's, for example, Tex-Mex, which we found that 6% of all restaurants nationwide serve Tex-Mex style Mexican food. Um, and uh, there's also Cal-Mex, there's New Mexican style, uh, and of course there's Arizona uh, style. Um, but that's only here in the U.S. There is, of course, a wide variety of, of distinct uh, cuisines and, and styles in Mexico itself. So you have Oaxacan, for example, you have Poblano, you have many other variations on Mexican cuisine across Mexico itself, again, reflecting the diversity of the landscape, the foods and, uh, and ingredients available. So we have in the United States this so-called uh, migration crisis on the southern border. We have right-wing media trying to turn this into a quote-unquote invasion. But uh, we're seeing that because of the availability of things like Mexican food, it does uh, provide an entry point for people to at least um, uh, understand and appreciate the culture of Mexico and see that as not as a threat, but as part of the fabric of the United States. Uh, that's a really great question and a really great point. Um, uh, back in 2015, we had done a survey of the U.S. public where we asked Americans about the contributions that immigrants make to the to life in the United States. And the one uh, place where the U.S. public sees immigrants making a their biggest contribution about at that, at that time, more than half of American adults had said this was the case, about 55 percent. Um, had said that it was in food and culture. So for many Americans, um, seeing immigrant communities or, uh, in, their, in, their, um, in their neighborhoods or in their counties or in their cities or metro areas in many ways also has with it this, this uh, growing diversity of foods from around the world. Mexican food, of course, is part of that. But as you noted, talking about 
um, the um, what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, people who've come across the border recently, many of those uh, folks who are seeking asylum are from Central America. And in our analysis, we also look at other foods as well. So you can see that, for example, in the Washington, D.C. area, Salvadoran foods and Salvadoran restaurants um, are uh, among the most common Hispanic or Latin American restaurants, uh, although Mexican restaurants are not far behind. Um, but to also point to, to get to uh, a private answer to your question, um, it is striking uh, that uh, in our supermarkets and in our everyday lives, things like tortillas have been incorporated into um, how we have lunch. For example, you may not call it a burrito, but you might call it a wrap. Um, and that really is a reflection of how much Mexican cuisine is part of the U.S. food landscape. And as we were talking about earlier, Mexican food in many ways is American food. Uh, was this um, study able to once and for all establish that San Antonio has the best tacos? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, no. It could. It didn't quite. Didn't quite settle that. Um, however, San Antonio has some really amazing uh, Mexican food, and it had the best tortillas I've ever had in in San Antonio. So, uh, I, I would, if we were to ask that, I'm sure that San Antonio would rate highly. But we might have to provide our survey respondents with an, uh, with a sample of a. Uh, San Antonio uh, Mexican food to at least taste it. Mark Hugo Lopez is the director of race and ethnicity research at Pew Research Center. Every Texas town and city has stories to be told about its history, its architecture, and its culture. TPR's arts and culture reporter Jack Morgan has written up this audio postcard with the tale of a hill country town, Bernie. If you've ever been to Bernie, it's almost hard not to notice one building that looms over the hill country town, a distinctive four-story tower on Bernie's highest hill. Beautiful piece of property. It has a valley, a couple hills on either side. has a fantastic view of downtown Bernie. Paul Barwick has spent the last 30 years working for the city of Bernie and is now their special projects director. He says the property's recent history begins with a family named Krenkowski. The Krenkowski family purchased it in the late 1800s. When the Krenkowski family bought the property, Albert Sr. was the patriarch. You know, most people think, well, the Krenkowski family, you know, they made all their money with the San Antonio Drug Company. Well, yeah, they did, but what had happened was uh, Albert Sr. knew George Merck, and so he was traveling in San Antonio, and he was visited with Albert at his office, and uh, he became ill while he was here. Albert helped nurse Merck back to health, and as a thanks, Merck gave Krenkowski stock in Merck Pharmaceutical, stock Albert kept buying after the gift. Uh, at one point, he was the largest individual shareholder for Merck Pharmaceutical. Between San Antonio Drug Company and the Merck Investments, the Krenkowskis began building their acreage, constructing two large stone homes. Sister Bernadine Reyes is a Benedictine nun whose order bought the property back in 1962. We're Benedictine sisters. The name comes from the fact that St. Benedict, who lived in the 6th century, wrote a rule, a way of life. And that rule has been pertinent to people's lives through all these centuries. The sisters occupy several of the buildings the Krenkowskis had built for family. The main house was their home, two-story building. And there was a, another house built just across from that building, which was Albert Jr. Two two-story stone homes adorn one hill, but there are two hills and both contain homes. There is another residential house on the property. It was not their main house, but it's a full house with a full kitchen. 
Paul Barwick notes that just as necessity is the mother of invention, the ravine between the two birthed one of the property's oddest attributes. If you wanted to be able to walk from structure to structure, you're having to go downhill up some caliche roads and work your way back up the hills. So they came up with this idea of putting a uh, an elevated bridge, a, a walking bridge, and pretty spectacular layouts. That approximately 100-yard bridge was about 6 feet wide, and at parts were about 60 feet above the ravine. While the bridge made a strenuous trek easy, it wasn't built to last and didn't. But the concrete piers at the bottom are still there, a bit like Stonehenge in miniature from one hillside across the ravine, then up. Unlike some of the wealthy, the Kronkowski family didn't wall out the rest of the world. Albert Kronkowski would make that place available for GIs during you know, World War II. Would be open for dances and all kinds of activities. And of course, he had a San Antonio drug company, which is the company he owned, and he would bring his employees out, Bernie, so they'd hop on the San Antonio Ranches Pass train. That train no longer exists, but the old number nine rails to trails walk path is now in the track's place. Another Kronkowski architectural attribute towers above Bernie from its highest point, that four-story Japanese-style building with a pagoda roofline. You know, Mr. Gronkowski was very much into the Asian culture and loved the style of architecture. It just really has a very unique character about it. Former publisher of the Bernie Star newspaper, Brian Cartwright. When he was operating the San Antonio Drug Company, he would often travel throughout the Orient to look for different medicines and different different herbs and whatnot that he could use here in the United States to form into medicines. And so while traveling through the Orient, he kind of got accustomed to that type of architecture. The narrow limestone structure once held a large water tank, but now it's filled with stairs. On a clear day, the view from the top is 20 miles plus. You get up on the top and there's doors that open up and there's places where you can stand outside and look over and you can literally look right down on the city of, of Bernie below you. In a property with many historic and unusual features, it's perhaps a small one that's most unusual, a seven-step elevated bench perched on a hillside overlooking downtown. Your eye tells you it's made of wood logs, but in fact, artist Carlos Cortez says it's all concrete and rebar. Reinforced concrete sculpting, imitating wood, stone. About a hundred years ago, Carlos Cortez's father, Maximo, created this piece on site. Well, Maximo was my, my dad, and uh, he learned the work from my great uncle, Dionisio Rodriguez. Maximo wasn't a self-involved artist with an entourage of fans. He was highly skilled in an unusual craft called faubois, fake wood, which kept him in work even during the Depression. Definitely. I don't think they, they were considered artists, and I don't even know if they used the term artisan. While faubois work is highly specialized, those writing their paychecks tended to think of them less as artists and more of skilled laborers. Carlos reflects back on when he and his dad went to check out the bench. Well, my dad passed away in 1997. I think that we went, this would have been maybe in the 80s. They spent some time sitting there reminiscing. Maximo was given something by the Krenkowskis that he kept with them forever. He had a letter that was a letter of recommendation from the Kronkowski family. I recall that the letter was dated around 1927, so it would have been some time around that time that he did the work. Etched into concrete on the second from bottom stair of the bench notes that it's the work of, quote, M. Period Cortez, 3203 Salinas Street, end quote, and gives a phone number, 
Carlos says this was one of several Faubois pieces on the property back in the Kronkowski era. Eventually, the property was sold to the Benedictine sisters, who have no plans of moving. Sister Bernadine Reyes says that after the sale, the Kronkowski family didn't just disappear from their lives. They sold us the property, but they kept a relationship with the sisters. Some of the sisters used to go play dominoes with them. And I remember them coming for Christmas Eve, and they wanted to have hamburgers grilled. They were certainly very wealthy, but very simple. Albert's wife, Bessie, would put her husband to work after dinner. Bessie would often say to Albert, you go wash the dishes, we're going to start the game. With all those who have come to and subsequently gone from Bernie's Kronkowski estate, it's perhaps the people and their heartwarming stories that have kept it fascinating and relevant. I'm Jack Morgan in San Antonio. You can find pictures from the story at tpr.org and a disclosure, the Kronkowski Foundation is a grant supporter for Texas Public Radio. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. You can find past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us, download us, and like us wherever you get great podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.